Hello and welcome to the 25th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Saturday the 5th of October 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we continue with Chapter 8, Political Consciousness, and riff some more on the elusive party form. This week I have the new Patreons, Michael, Brian Nugent, and Ryan Tardiff to thank. If you'd like to help out, you too can join the Patreon gang gang for as little as $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode. Patrons get special bonus episodes, the right to vote, on the reading group series and other cool stuff too. When we reach 100 patrons, we'll be producing a second patron-only podcast every month. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. Make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. This all gets into that ambiguity about what is the party. I don't want to make like an artificial kind of grudge match between the early and late Marx, like uh, the Althusser tradition does. But there is an issue about Marx, at least Engels. McNair is right that it's really the late Engels that gets more deep into the SP day. Marx doesn't really want to like hurt it while he's alive, but you know, has his gripes about it. And again, it's not that's not necessarily what Marx was thinking of by a party. But Engels gets more enthusiastic about the potentials of this kind of party. And he had some reason to be. And then, of course, there's a reason that we can't build the Second International today. It required a certain, I mean, it required the workers' movement as it was. We're stuck in a situation where we have all of this historical baggage, you might say. And, and I think, you know, probably all of us here feel like party in some way is necessary, probably in a, in a more, probably in a stronger sense than the Marxian notion of party. But, but we know we also can't repeat the Kautskian form, right? What do you mean we can't repeat the Kautskian form? Well, the Kautskian form was based on that kind of workers' movement. And that kind of workers' movement was situated in the construction of capitalism, basically, or the construction of the capitalism that we know, the, the full-blown capitalism we have today. Like, it was important at that time to have workers' movements that were linked into, the, essentially, the state. I mean, if we were more consistent, maybe we would consider lining up with the state as being kind of right-wing, you know, if we're doing Bismarck, right? We're, we're making the state the guarantor of the workers' movement as opposed to having something independent against the bourgeois state and against, you know, whatever the hell the Soviet state was. The thing is, though, like having like a loose ass tendency, like what Marx means by party seems like not enough. But we don't have the exact same conditions for forming the Second International's notion of parties. But there's just a great sort of Kautskyan outlook that I think was funnily best expressed by Lenin when he was still a revolutionary, that politics is done in the millions. You need some kind of big form, some kind of mass form. And I don't know if it'll be political in the sense that this, the second international was, but you know, it's got to be big. You can't have a little fractitious Leninist cluster or something. That's not a party. So to pick up on that, uh, what Lexi says, 
I'm actually going to go epistemological for a second. And also, I'm going to shit on Optisarians one more time. I've always been fascinated by the fact that the people who talk about the late Marx split and really valorize like the anti-humanism of late Marx. Also, however, almost entirely get their defenses of class collaboration and their defenses of being focused on ideology. All that's early Marx. So they're inconsistent on even that front. Like they're not actually like they mission match anyway, but that's not so much my point here. I think there is an, a moment of ambiguity that we have to deal with here. That's going to go back to our tangent earlier about Marxism as a science. The uh, Aristotelian former Marxist, who's now like a Catholic, wrote a book called Marxism and Christianity Interpretation, which barely mentions Christianity at all. It's mostly a history of Marxism. But he talks about the Kalskian notion of laws playing into the Kalskian notion of party. And the problem that he had is all the predictive laws that the Kalskian notion of party was tied to the further immiseration of the proletariat while it was increasingly skilled, the increasing militancy of the proletariat, even in Kalski's time, wasn't true. The response to that was largely from Lukash, which, which was that, okay, well, the orthodox Marxist response is to take the structure of what was good in Engels, Marx, and Kowski, these laws. And even if these laws are wrong, they have led us to their representatives in history, which is the official Communist Party organs, which are the manifestations of the workers' consciousness. And whatever these party organs say is right. And of course, this leads to the immediate contradiction there because the official party organs all repudiated Lukash. So he ended up refuting himself. And so that that a four leads to because we don't know what we're actually predicting and what our scientific program is we also don't know what our political program is and it's hard to be strategic when you're that lost and i think like that is my only fear about this book is that it glosses over the fact that we're in different social conditions and i'm going to end by referencing the Brumaire. In the end of the Brumaire, Marx talks about these hanger-on revolutionaries. He was actually insulting the neo-Jacobins and the Blanquias, but these hanger-on revolutionaries who always want to live the revolutions of the immediate past. And he was referring to people thinking like the commune was like 1848 or the original Jacobin movement, which by that time, the neo-Jacobins, they don't have any direct ties to the original Jacobins. It's almost 100, well, not quite 100 years later. It's like 60 years later, most of the original ones are dead. So. What I find fascinating about that is, is like if you take that seriously, the entire communist movement that we know it for the most part, including the left communists, are rumpists who are attached to prior revolutionary forms and are not that interested in, in deviating from those and looking at conditions now. And I think McNair is trying to do that, but he also doesn't want to say Marx was wrong <laughs> on anything. I don't know that I do either, but this does seem to be a real problem. Like, this isn't answered in Marx, or Engels and Marx, or Kowski, or any of it. One, the conditions for the Kowski's parties doesn't exist. Two, the Kowskian predictions of what capital was going to do didn't happen. That's a big problem. And most people's critique of Marxism really is a critique of uh, Kowskiism because the road to power was more read than any Marxist text in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I'm going to step out on that. Ultimately, the central tension for me in McNair's work is this really like erudite sympathy for Leninism. Like this was the guy that made it so I could think of myself as a heterodox Leninist for maybe another couple of years, you know, 
because I so respected where he was going with this. And even though like, I think this book can be taken beyond Leninism, probably even better. With his commitment to good methodological norms that I sometimes call analytical Marxism. It's funny that Lukash's solution to, well, Marx, Engels, and Kautsky, they might be wrong sometimes. So, you know, let's do like this one weird epistemological trick. And then, cool, that's cool. Truth just means what the party says now. Great. But the old ass, like Marxist dank philosopher guy that I like better is Karl Korsch, who was just like, dude, just like read other stuff. Marxism is like part of the world. And this other stuff is about stuff about the world. Incorporate it. Incorporate the insights of Marxism into like, you know, the rest of social reality. See what it does. I feel like if you are a revolutionary or pro-revolutionary, whatever, if you don't want to be those weird rumpists fetishizing the old forms, it's not that you'll keep yourself ignorant of history. I, I think that's a mistake too. It's that you know what to look for in history. You have a kind of disciplined, pragmatic, surgical approach. You have a, just enough categorization to sort of like make it so that you don't get lost so that you can see like some central dynamics at play. And the point isn't to build out typologies there. The point is, you know, to think about what kind of situation you're in relative to what was there in the past. That's all. You know, I don't think we have to abandon revolutionary history. Uh, it's inspiring and it's interesting and it's depressing, but we have to rethink our relationship to revolutionary history. And sometimes we act like we're into the great man, even if we repudiate it, you know, or, or the great moment or this or that. You have to kind of see these as tokens of a type and analyze those, those types, have a categorical critique, these things. It's important. It's, it goes back to some of the most fundamental notions of what it means to be a science in the like, you know, Western, like philosophical, Aristotelian, whatever tradition and in the Arabian world as well, the Islamic world more generally. I think Derek was talking about like the lowering of standard of living quality of workers as uh, capitalism develops. You know, sometimes you get these uh, predictions in Marx too. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of this language in um, Marxism and uh, a lot of these claims being made, but I don't think it actually goes against Marx's like economic theory with, uh, you know, you can easily predict wage growth using uh, his economic theory. Well, I, I think that's because like Marx actually tends to work in discrete categories, like capital is about one thing. Where where you get the really bong rip Marx takes is like the Grundessa, which is why it's everyone's favorite, like every weirdo's favorite Marxist, because you can get some weird quotes and kind of justify anything you want. Uh, it's also where you can really disprove the Althusserians who say there's a hard break and like Marx doesn't talk about alienation anymore. Yes, he does. He doesn't in Grundessa. I mean, like, it's just he methodologically is doing something broader there. I do worry, though, the, my, my, I'm actually going to like contradict myself because I kind of feel like doing that. My only one worry is this: we get too much into like the we have to change with the times, which I think we do, that you can use that as an excuse for like your socialist fan club chapter or whatever clearinghouse organization you happen to be a member of right now, even though that those structures are don't have anything to do. I mean, at least in one case, um, I know I'm being vague here, but like the DSA is, is explicitly like not structured 
like a party. It is it is federated to an obscene degree. You don't even have to agree with its bylaws. Your chapter can apply to have bylaws removed specifically for your local chapter. That's that's nutty. It's very American, but it's nutty. If we're not careful, it can lead to utter opportunism. So we do kind of have to figure out, and like, and the working class has to kind of figure it out too, or maybe on its own, what's necessary and essential, and what's what is historically contingent. That's not an easy question at all, as this Magnier book really illustrates. Okay, I'm going to move it on here. So this is where he goes on about the strategic problem of the international. Marx and Engels did not much discuss the relation between the national revolutions supposed by the claim that the proletariat of each country must, first of all, settle matters with its own bourgeoisie and the international character of the workers' movement posed by the Communist League and the First International. Nor did Marx, in his critique of the Gotha programme, draw out the strategic implications of his comment that the framework of the present-day national state, for instance, the German Empire, is itself in its turn economically of the world market, politically within the framework of the system of states. Every businessman knows that German trade is at the same time foreign trade, and the greatness of Herr Bismarck consists, to be sure, precisely in his pursuing a kind of international policy. It is commonly said that the generals tend to fight the last war. Well, that's getting towards what you were saying, Derek, about the, all these secklets and different people on the left. You know, I think there's great truth to that. 1848 was an international revolutionary wave in which more or less simultaneous national upsurges were obviously part of a common international movement. Marx and Engels fairly clearly saw this experience of their youth as a model for the future revolutionary moment. It did not appear. Instead, the period was dominated by a series of national movements and short European wars. The Crimea in 1854 to 56, the Franco-Austrian War 1859, and the unification of Italy 1860, the Austro-Prussian War 1866, and the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, which led to the Paris Commune. The defeat of the Commune in 71 the split of the international with the pecuniarists in 1872 and the defeat of the Spanish Revolution in 1873 shifted at least Engels' thinking towards what was to become Kautskyism. The patient work building up the organised forces of the working class carried on mainly through national politics. In the party of the Second International, this evolved into a clear conception that the working class could take power in individual countries as the condition in these countries became ripe for socialism. What do people have to say on all that? I agree with it. Same. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the only thing I, I, I kind of have a, a minor issue with is the, you know, could take power in individual countries as the conditions in these countries became ripe. I don't think that's necessarily true. I still think that like what McNair talked about was like kind of like a continental block or at least part of a continent at the very least, like two different countries is, is important. Or if it is just one country, the international has to have more political importance than that one country dictating to the international, as I said earlier. I think it pretty much has to be a continental block because the Soviet Union was more than one country. I mean, we, we, we talk about socialism in one country, but it wasn't just Russia. They had 
their internal trade system worked even, which was complicated when I was trying to figure out how the fuck that the ruble actually worked when it was decoupled from gold after 1932, <laughs> um, which is really hard to figure out. Actually, it, it was. Did they decouple? You know, I thought they always stayed on gold. No, they decoupled. Stalin decoupled them in 32. But they, they brought it back. Uh, no, uh, Brezhnev. I'm pretty sure. No, I checked this out. I'm Brezhnev. Sure. No, Brezhnev pegged the international currency. And this the is international where it gets ruble. Pegged. The international yeah, the internal. ruble. Yeah. The internal yeah, yeah, the ruble international... was not pegged to anything. <laughs> yeah. The international ruble was always pegged to gold, as far as I'm yeah. aware, isn't it? Uh, well, and after the 60s, it's pegged to the pound sterling, which is pegged to gold. So it's indirectly pegged to gold. But even after, even after the sterling went off the gold standard, and the Americans went off the gold standard. I think they. I think they were back to the. Uh, it gets crazy, man. I. I, I like I, this. This is a real tangent. This was really hard to figure out how it actually worked because I did. It took me forever to realize that, like, even though they didn't admit that they had two currencies, they had two completely separate currencies. So. <laughs> they had. They had three. They actually yeah. had three yeah. rubles. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a claim that there's there was three. Yeah, there was a tree. There was the rubles that were on the book sheets of the companies, which weren't transferable. Right, they were only like accountancy rubles that didn't trade in any sense. I actually was pushing back on on Doug because Doug was like, they didn't have labor tokens, and I was like, internally they kind of did because their currency wasn't pegged to anything. It was. Uh, uh, we're we're way off. We're we're. But way, anyway, way we're, we're way off. Um, I don't know what that has to do. How Welcome to the Soviet that? Monetary Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I think wow. the currency wouldn't like labor tokens because it also circulated between the peasants' economy, so it did circulate to some extent. Yeah, it wasn't labor tokens because it was tra- it was internal. It was a it was a fiat yeah. currency that wasn't was transferable on a on a on an international market. Motherfuckers, I was joking. Let's go back to revolutionary <laughs> strategy. <laughs> When I went to Poland in 98, I was trying to get some Zlotys before I went, or Zwatis, and uh, it was like that. They didn't, they, you couldn't buy them outside of Poland. They were a fiat one, but they didn't have uh, an international peg. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. We, we, we just went on super Soviet nerdery. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, can I read this next little section here, The Logic of Evolution? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, the yeah. logic of this evolution must be fully brought out in Kowski's preparations for peace in October 1914. Democracy can only find its best expression in a state which consists of one nation speaking one language. Modern production brings people ever closer to touch with each other. The more inner divisions fall away, the more all members of the state speak the same language, the more intensely in economic, intellectual, and political life can proceed. Within this method of production is arising cooperation of the lower classes in intellectual and political life, which means an additional strength to every nation. In the national state, both tendencies combine to strengthen each other. In a state of various nationalities, they come into hostile collusion with each other and thus have a paralyzing effect on economic and political progress as all are stronger as development progresses. The nation state here is, is made not only present, which workers' movement has to face, but also the necessary future of all humanity. That that's where Kalski goes, yeah. and it's weird because it, it is like I didn't like is, that. For example, in the debates between Lenin and Stalin, Stalin's national policy was originally based on Lenin's national policy, which was a respect for national sovereignty. But it, it ended up when you had to balkanize Eastern Europe for the first time ever and decouple all these groups that have been historically together. 
and then that actually increased national tensions. And when that happened, which is what he predicted, which is I'm, I'm going to give credit to Stalin for, for being right over Leonard on something, but which is what, what Stalin predicted from his experience in Georgia. His answer to it, though, is, is the same thing as like Benito Juarez's answer to it in Mexico was like, well, we can't have these micro-nationalisms. It leads to, uh, it leads to internal hostility, which I think Kowski is right about. But... Fuck them. Make them all speak Russian. Yeah, so let's Russify all of them and like develop this... It's a shitty argument. And, and vaguely racist response. Basically. Like, the, like ethnoi related to the word for language or something. It's just like... Yeah, it really is. Close to the idea. So you basically have to like, in a way, ethnically like modify. It, it's ethno-imperialism. Ethno yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a very scary argument. It is not racial imperialism, but it ended up being, I mean, like by the time you get to Brezhnev, it ends up being that way anyway. Cause like they start doing like every key cosmonaut needs to be Russian and like the Russian chauvinism, ironically, like doesn't. I mean, it kicks up a little bit during like World War II communism under Stalin, but it really kicks up actually later. It's it's crazy how the, this goes out. The the thing is, I want to say this strategically. This is still a hard problem. Like Lexi and I go back and forth on what we like. We argue about this kind of. It's one of the points where we're not entirely in agreement with each other, but we don't really have an answer because like both the models pursued by the Soviet Union and by and the models pursued by China are bad decoupling peoples who have been coupled together even though they speak different languages and have different religions for for hundreds of thousands of years was, was not hundreds of thousands but for hundreds of years in eastern europe was bad it was bad and it did actually increase nationalism xenophobia and like xenophobia and all this other stuff but russification was also bad <laughs> i guess like liberal multiculturalism is is kind of a third way here oh god i'm gonna say the third way word but but even that doesn't really work. I mean, we see that in the United States. Um, and, and God, the way it's interpreted in Europe is even worse. So I think this is a problem that, like, we, we need to turn the things outside of Marxism because there is no, like, the tradition from Marx to Kalski doesn't go anywhere. It ends up in a battle between, like, in between, like, how, how do you have one mega nation, basically, or do you have a bunch of little nations in confederation with each other, but who have increased tensions with each other, and thus are probably going to be, there's probably going to be more ethnic voting blocks and stuff, and, like, ethnic revenge and all this stuff whenever there's civil unrest, which, again, you saw in China. Mega nation. Mega nation. Mega nation. <laughs> <laughs> also i just have to say like at one point when derek was talking you kind of sound like seinfeld like russification what's up with that <laughs> what? what do you mean um, could you elaborate on that you didn't you didn't hear that am i the only one who heard that <laughs> i okay. think you're the only one you're the only I one i didn't i didn't hear i didn't hear any jerry seinfeld. It, it was i was thinking myself as jason alexander but damn um <laughs> 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 let let its rust let its policies for the about the nation fail, Jerry. <laughs> I'm, done. I'm done. I'm done. Kyle. 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 Uh, yeah, I I wanted to just mention like the line that can kind of be drawn here in McNair's argument, right? That this Kautskian perspective really comes out of like the late 19th century experience and like what Engels saw, what Kautsky saw out of that. When Kowski is talking in preparations for peace about this subject, 
it really feels like, you know, he's basically talking about like the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, right? These are examples that he could point to. But just because it comes out of that one period of time doesn't mean that like we need to overstate the validity of this point of view, right? Because as for all the reasons that have already been mentioned, it's enormously problematic. <laughs> okay, like it just seems to me it's a really bad argument. The fact that like bourgeoisie play off different ethnic people or different language groups against each other is not a reason to fucking get rid of different cultures. It's just a shoddy argument. You said something about liberal multiculturalism, and uh, what's wrong with that exactly? So what what happens with liberal multiculturalism is that elements of culture that are actually in contradiction of the of the economic can't really stay. So it like it, you just can't. So like, and there are some, let's say, like religious groups are like tr- traditional tribal groups where this really is a problem. Like, they cannot function with their traditional society. Well, us leaving it intact as anything other than costumes because it literally can't function in capitalism. And while if you're an immigrant from like, I don't know, a, an already semi-capitalist country, like say fairly developed part of the Middle East, as long as you're not like a Salafist or something, it's going to be pretty easy for you to integrate. So that's how it does work. But like, if you're really truly primarily, if your culture is primarily like from a different time period, you know, a different kind of development, it doesn't work. And it leads to resistance. Um, the American idea of the melting pot was sort of like our our version of the Kalski argument. Honestly, it was like, well, we can just melt every down and make them Americans, like we so like lives aren't lost. But then the multicultural argument is no, it's like a salad. You can leave, you know, everybody gets to stay intact, but we're all functioning together. And the issue with the latter is, it's just factually not true for certain groups because they're just too much at odds with the prevailing society. If they totally excond themselves and like isolate themselves, like say Orthodox Jews or the Amish, it only becomes a problem when they start voting blocking. But in general, it it really can be a big deal. And I think actually that's part of the, the reason why stuff in the Middle East gets so weird is some of that Islamist stuff is fundamentally incompatible with capitalism. But I think maybe the the like North American multicultural model, which is probably best exemplified by Canada, is probably the least bad of the answers we've come up so far. Okay, um, hold on, I'm gonna seize. Sorry. I hope Sophia, um, I hope you're not going to mute. I hope you didn't mute yourself or your sneeze. Sure, we should get I, to hear I the did. sneeze. <laughs> Do you want to oh, you want the sneeze on the recording, Tom? Is that what you want? I did. Yeah. Okay, I'll keep that in mind next time. Yes, so kind of also to elaborate on the issue with uh, liberal multiculturalism, particularly in America. But I mean, it's really true of like all of like, uh, you know, bourgeois society is that there's there's always this underlying element of white supremacy that kind of undercuts that. And it's impossible to do away with that uh, racial cat like system without doing away without with the fundamental like capitalist system if, if that makes sense so like you that's how you get like this kind of like modern woke culture where like corporations are like making all these woke ads and all that stuff and yet you know black people are being killed by cops and trans people especially black trans women are getting like murdered daily you know what i mean and oftentimes this violence happens at the hand of the state 
so there's this fundamental tension that that the liberalism within multiculturalism can't really deal with. Uh, I feel like multiculturalism might be an okay way to deal with it. You know, it's kind of like passive towards it and kind of just like lets it develop through its own ways. I don't I don't think multiculturalism like the idea that like for the most part like cultures are not inherently better than each other i don't disagree with that but i think what the issue isn't multiculturalism the issue is that we live in a capitalist society that (laughs) is based on settler colonialism and the supremacy of people of european descent you can't like make these two things work together like you're either multicultural and different cultures are just different cultures and are not like better or worse than each other or white culture is better no matter how woke capitalism gets like at the end of the day white supremacy is still a thing that's my issue with it yeah and just to sort of pick up on that point that Derek was making like in the case of Canada um you know we just had Canada Day here and it's like the amount of multicultural sort of like patriotism is still very strong, despite the sort of like rise of like Anglo chauvinist conservatism as a reaction to it uh, recently. But I think really what you get here is a kind of like settler cultural alliance, uh, multiculturalism as like a an accord between all different settler groups, um, which really excludes indigenous people because yeah, the um, indigenous culture is not going to easily integrate into capitalism. So yeah, as you as you were saying, it's 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 a it's a kind of settler colonial project um, that and that's a major major issue with it. When you read uh, an Indigenous People's History of the United States, the author talks about how the late like uh, 20th century had had this like rise of like kind of like postmodern multiculturalism as a response like the problem of settler colonialism that just kind of pitted like oh Indigenous culture is just a separate but equal culture, and she points out how in reality, on top of like these economic contradictions, the, that's just not historically true. Like the settlers always looked down on Indigenous people as inferior and savage and so when you're just like oh no we're all equal now it's fine you're you're erasing not only that history but also the current status of uh, indigenous people in these southern countries which is frankly awful so yeah i totally agree with that and it's it's very it's interesting in canada how like it is better than the united states and yet you still have like indigenous people really like fighting justin trudeau and justin trudeau is like supporting these different like oil pipelines that go through the first nations lands and and all that kind of stuff okay i'm going to move it along here i think unless somebody objects lexi you haven't you haven't read anything here today do you want to take the next section we have already seen the underlying problem with this approach capitalism is from the beginning an international social formation and the nation state is in relation to the world market merely a firm The state firm retains liquidity by borrowing on financial markets. These, if they are national in form, are international in substance. This was already true of the 17th century Amsterdam and 18th century London financial markets. An attempt in a single country to break with capitalist rule or even to significantly improve the position of the working class will thus be met with withdrawal of credit by the capitalists leading to an immediate crisis of state liquidity, 
and more general economic dislocation. If a socialist government responds by expropriations, the immediate effect is to break the incentive structure of the capitalist market in the country and increase economic dislocation. In addition, the response of international capital will then take the form of blockade and war. It thus becomes immediately necessary to move to generalized planning under economic autarky. This was the situation of the Bolsheviks in 1918 through 19. It has been repeated with varying results, usually the collapse of the socialist government, many times since. The result is, in fact, as it was in the former Tsarist empire, economic regression. Hence, the Socialist Party loses its majority support and is forced, if it is to continue its course, to minority dictatorship and increasingly systematic repression. In countries that are not self-sufficient in food, energy, and raw materials, i.e., most advanced capitalist countries, the result would be mass starvation. The socialist government would collapse into a capitalist government far more rapidly than happened in Russia and China. There's a lot to digest in that bit there. Why is he getting into this? Is he trying to lay out the problems of just being the nation state and how, why an international is so necessary? You know, that if you're just an island, you know, a socialist island, and you try and do it yourself, you're going to be under attack by the capitalists all around you and in charge. You're not going to be able to just implement, you know, planning overnight, and shit's going to go bad. And mm -hmm. it's going to either lead to a regression or, you know, the Soviet Union, Chinese, hard-ass, dictatorial position. So this is his reasoning for why it is so important for an international to be functional. That's what he's getting to. Yeah, and I think that ambiguity in history, in a way, has been settled by the historical record and by, you know, kind of like game theory. When you fucking run the simulation, every time you try to have your little commie utopia, it could be as big as the former Russian Empire, and it's still going to get blocked by the whole world economy. We're going to read this last little bit here. The exception that proves the rule is the outcome of World War II. The effects... Oh, before we go on, I want to say something here. I like McNair, but I think his uh, economic stuff sometimes is a bit wishy-washy. It kind of reads like a, like a gold bug. He says like that the capitalists will withdraw credit, leading to a, 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 a crisis of state liquidity. You know, if you've got control over your own currency... You can't run out of currency. Banks are, in effect, a state license to create money. So the causality has is wrong. But definitely, the capitalist class can withdraw consumption, but the state could step in. I think that's just a slight minor MMT. Yeah, <laughs> I think anyway, any way that you reconstruct the economic logic, the capitalist class just has you by the proverbial jewels every time. Yeah, they have a lot of they have a lot of tools to use, and and more so, it's a, it's it's what international capital can do than your nation national capital. Look what the U.S. can do to to Iran. Even though Iran have their own currency and they can print it or do whatever the hell, they still have to sell their goods into the world and they have to get their uh, imports out of the out of the world. So you can they can fuck you up that way. I just think the language McNair uses there about how about the causality is incorrect. Anyway, let's keep going. No, um. The exception that proves the rule is the outcome of the World War II, the effects of which stretched down to the 1980s. The deep global crisis of British world hegemony 
culminating in World War II and the particular form from which that war took yielded the result that the USSR was massively strengthened while remaining under bureaucratic rule. In the ensuing Cold War, there could appear to be a series of national revolutions, but in reality, these were possible because the countries involved, most clearly Cuba, were brought into and subsidized by the autarkic bureaucratic planning system of the Soviet regime. Equally, the US, now hegemonic over the capitalist countries, consciously encouraged social democratic and nationalist reform in capital's frontline states as an instrument to secure them from being added to the Soviet empire, part of the policy of containment. I like this point. You go around the map of, of, of Europe and you look who's got the best healthcare and the best social care. Sweden, Finland, Germany, all these ones that touched on them, even, even Italy were, were reasonably good. You know, compare them to like South America, you know, or Central America or Africa. No, it seems like absolutely not a coincidence that all of these ones that were on the border of Russia all got the best deal out of capitalism. Okay, let me let me keep going. The offensive of the working class in the late 60s and early 70s destroyed the policy of containment and led the US to turn to a global policy of aggressive rollback of communism under the banner of human rights. The fall of the USSR has finally destroyed the foundations of the policy of concessions for the sake of containment. The exception is now over. It still proves the rule because it was international events and dynamics, World War II and the Cold War, that enabled the supposedly national revolutions and reforms. Capitalism is an international system and it's international events and movements that enable radical change in individual states. One little thing I'd like to say here as well is that like he puts it down to the offensive of the working class, but nothing to do with like profit rate going down. I think, you know, they're probably all wrapped up together, but um, it's interesting how everything for him has to be political and not economic. Yeah, I was noticing that too. That was kind of my critique of the book is it kind of it takes economic role in this out of the situation. Like the offensive of the working class in the late 60s and its dissolution in the late 70s, containment's part of it, but also profitability's part of it. And that's that actually that's an international system too. And it actually explains things like the financialization of the economy doesn't have a damn thing to do with containment, but it has a lot to do with profitability. This does lead to a blind spot. And I feel like when I talk to McNairist a lot, they do seem to think of things almost totally in terms of political strategy as if the the economy doesn't exist. You you see that like lack of an economic analysis in the formation of social democracy in Europe as well, because like I don't even disagree with the point that like social democracy is related to containment. And that's why you had like the post-war compromise and all that. But you also saw... Western Europe with good social welfare programs in part because of colonialism as well. And then you didn't see that as much in Latin America or Africa as well. I mean, it's tangential, I guess, to the point in the book, but you know, the, it does kind of uh, point towards a blind spot about economics. I was about to say um, that that was, that was something else that I noticed that, that the Maoists would have an answer to McNair here. But like, yeah, it's containment, but that's really labor aristocracy, and that's really what's going on. And think in reality, all three things were going on. So, I think he 
He's kind of like picking up on like the profit squeeze theory of like why Keynesianism collapsed or why the, the, the class compromise collapsed um, as opposed to the, the falling profit rate sort of idea, right? It's just that working class militancy was so intense in the late 60s, early 70s that it caused a panic among capitalists and, and incited a uh, political counter-revolution. I guess there is kind of an economic theory there, but I, I don't find it as convincing as the one that, that's about uh, sort of the falling profit rate. Yeah, that's a lot of bullshit. That's a lot of bullshit. I'm only joking. I do think it is bullshit, though. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean your point was bullshit, Kyle. I meant the theory. <laughs> Let uh, me clarify. Oh, yeah. We, no, we, I, we got no you. offense taken. We were remarkably disciplined today. We actually, I know, I know mm. we're not finishing this, but we got through more than we normally did. Like we've spent mm -hmm. two hours on a page before. <laughs> <laughs> you got to tell me, Derek, Derek, I did like the covers for all the like thumbnails for all the way up to episode number 32 last night. Cause that's where I reckon it's going to oh get to. I did six, I did 16. <laughs> I did 16 podcast ones and I did 16 YouTube ones because they're different sizes in like an hour. And I swear to God, I wanted to shoot myself. Yeah, he just sent me a text that was like, like on Discord. He's like, I, I hate my life. <laughs> like, oh. Just wait till we get to the next chapter. Like that's going to be oh slow. God. That's, that's, oh, the, that's the, intense. The Republican. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's the final boss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the boss level. That, that yeah. chapter is not fucking around. <laughs> Kyle, you listened to when this I, whole like, series so far, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Fucking hell! <laughs> well, I've got, I've got Thank one you. more. I've. I've edited the whole fucking series. <laughs> so it's fuck true. you guys. You're right. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's and, true. And this is not easy to edit, I will add, because we fucking yeah. talk over each other and go off on weird-ass tirades. And... Yeah. I mean, yeah, at, least, I, I... at least all of our weird-ass tirades today were actually about communism as opposed to, like, pooing. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about I toilet think... chat. Wait, 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 wait. When did we go on a tirade about pooing? We, oh, had, what? we talked that about Soviet it. toilets. Oh, yeah, communist toilets. Yeah, <laughs> cockshot yeah. toilet efficiency. You know, it's, it's oh lord, it's the best thing out of that book. The best thing in oh, that book. Oh my god. <laughs> Where Here, like, actually, there isn't. There, there's no chapter. McNair hasn't put a chapter in revolutionary toilet strategy in here. Like, surely that'll be like, you know, oh, my god. how. One chapter on how closely you should stand next to your comrade, <laughs> you know, in the urinals. You know. I don't know. I hope, I hope he's a little more autonomous on toilets than Cockshot, I guess. I, I think yeah. uh, he covers yeah. that in, a, in an article in the Weekly Worker, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in a uh, you know, four-article four debate with Alex Kalikanos or something. Holy crap! <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap, indeed, Derek, indeed. <laughs> no, Cockshot's yeah. transphobia just all of a sudden makes sense to me because, because it messes <laughs> up his toilet scheme. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Is that the root? We, we found the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone of bad Cockshot? Yes, it all, yeah. it all comes back to toilet. Yeah. Really good and bad. You know, everything about it.
about that. It's you know, it's like enraptured there. Yeah. Wow, Tom. You've, you've you know, got like, the dialectical essence of his work. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats. Thank you.